Welcome to this month's edition of Pulp Nonfiction, the paper and packaging podcast. I'm Greg Johnson with Sustana Fiber, and I'm here once again with my co-host, Dr. Marta Pazos. So Marta, it's good seeing you again. And is it just me, or does it seem like we're seeing more and more cooking and food shows on TV? Hi, Greg. I am so excited today. I am actually one of those people that is addicted to food shows, to cooking shows. And yes, I mean, Gordon Ramsay has a lot of them, uh, Master Chef, The Next Level Chef. I also really like Top Chef, but one of my favorites is Hosted by Cat, which is um, Tastemakers. I absolutely love her, and I am so excited to speak with her today. Exactly, Marta. And what better way to explore some of these TV and marketplace food issues than with our guest today, Catherine Cat Neville, the producer and host of the critically acclaimed PBS television series, Tastemakers. Based in St. Louis, Cat has had a remarkably successful food-focused career, from reviewing restaurants and food truck trends to exploring the farm-to-table movement and regenerative agriculture. Prior to launching Tastemakers in 2017, Cat co-founded Sauce Magazine in 1999 and later in 2010 became publisher of Feast Magazine and Feast TV. Recently, Cat's added another new venture to her busy calendar involving Explore St. Louis. As a result of all her creative work, Cat has been the recipient of several Emmy Awards an Epi Award, as well as several James Beard nominations. Kat, it's great to see you again. We're grateful for your time today, and thank you for visiting with us. Oh, I'm so happy to be on your Pulp Nonfiction podcast, Greg. It's really great to see you. You too, Marta. Kat, it's so great meeting you. I am actually so starstruck. I absolutely have been <laughs> following your show, and I remember I started following your show when uh, a few years ago I started traveling domestically, and in hotel rooms, we, we didn't have that many channels, let alone streaming channels because streaming didn't exist. And PBS was always the one that I found the best to go to in, in those moments where I found myself alone in a hotel room in the middle of America. And I started, that's when I started following your, your taste makers show. How did you come up with such a fun sounding name? <laughs> So um, I've actually been in food media for about 20 years, and I started out, I launched a website uh, that covered the St. Louis food scene. I'm based in St. Louis, Missouri in like 1999, took it into print in 2001, and I started doing some television work on our local Channel 4, like CBS affiliate. Um, it was weekly restaurant reporting, and I just kind of fell in love with being on location. I fell in love with the way that video told stories in a more immersive way than print or even radio could do. Um, and so when I launched Feast magazine, which was the second magazine that I launched, um, and it's, it's regional, uh, meaning that it covers kind of the Midwest, I, I knew I wanted to have video be part of it. And so I, I started doing some kind of one-off videos that were tied to the content of the magazine. And after a little bit, I was like, you know, if we took the four or five videos that we're producing every month and kind of smushed them together, it would be kind of like a magazine style show. Um, so you're absolutely right. The, the work 
for tastemakers is, is a little more serious, quote unquote. It is more educational um, because I think there are a lot of amazing cooking shows out there and there are tons of people who are doing really good work in that space. And I wanted to tell the story of how food is made. Um, and I also wanted to tell the story of the connections within the food industry. And, you know, the idea of eat local, um, it almost sounds trite because we've, we've heard it so much, but it's critically important um, that people understand the path that food takes to their plate so that they can make informed decisions. And so what I do with tastemakers is I pick a maker. Um, and so a cheesemaker or a, a bread baker or a brewer or something like that. And then I weave in the story of people who they're connected to in their community. Maybe it's a farmer who grows um, the barley for a certain brewery or, um, or a bakery that, uh, that carries the bread from this particular baker or something like that. And so, um, so you get to meet a lot of people who are doing very thoughtful, independent, creative work in the food and beverage, you know, industry, but, and you also get to explore how they're connected and how these things are made. And that's what I get really excited about in the food space is, um, kind of going beyond just, here's a great radish. This is what you can do with it. Um, I really want to know where was the radish grown? What variety of radish is it? All, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's really what the show's about. I, I love it. And I'll tell you what, as a chemist that I am, you have also always included something related to the chemistry, the chemist, the chemical processes, right? That, that food goes, I know that chemical process is, is a dirty word these, these, these days, but it is, everything goes through a chemi chemical process, right? Like such as fermentation. That is like the one that I can think of at the first time, at first and in tastemakers, I see how you guys also introduce that. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Obsessed. Well, I mean, that's what cooking is. I mean, cooking, well, I you're, you're, you're applying heat, you're applying acid, you're curing with this, you're, you're baking, you know, I mean, there are so many ways that science and food intersect. And actually, this is kind of an aside, but my very first job was at Washington University Medical School here in St. Louis in the Department of Molecular Biology and Pharmacology. And all of those scientists were huge fans of cooking. And so, and for that exact reason is that cooking truly is tied to science and chemistry and it's just fascinating. Yep. The best chemists I've ever met are actually really good cooks. And I'm going to include myself in that one. <laughs> uh, that's very good, Marta. Well, you talked, uh, you mentioned, Kat, the, the story of, of food and how you talk to the different makers, bakers, everyone. Um, you know, we all know sustainability is a big part of the food scene these days and the food story. What do you do in your day-to-day -day life, whether it's on the film set uh, or at home when it comes to sustainability? Sustainability is, I think, um, a very general overarching term that folks don't really understand. I think the people are coming to understand it more. Um, it, it, sustainability means that you can continue in a process without like reaching a critical point where you have to change 
whatever that system is. And so we have to get to a point of sustainability. And part of what I think is really important in terms of the type of storytelling that I do and other roles that the, the media and, and, and especially food media can play is teaching people about how to make sustainable choices. So things like um, shopping at your local farmer's market, that is kind of very, very easy. But, you know, unless you live in Florida or Southern California or places where Farmers markets are are truly thriving. You're, it's very difficult to eat local throughout every season. Uh, sure. If you're living in a place like Missouri, which is where I am, we're having an ice storm today. Uh, so anyway, let me let me kind of back up. Sustainability is something that people can apply to their everyday lives. Number one, shopping local is one. And number two, I would suggest, and this is something that I do, composting at home is something that very easily can take food waste out of the, um, out of the, the waste stream. There, uh, a lot of folks don't realize that um, the majority of the food that's grown in the United States ends up in a landfill. We have a tremendous issue with food waste. And all of that food, if it's not properly composted, it's releasing methane into the environment. So it's contributing to um, to the greenhouse gas emissions, global warming, um, which a lot of folks don't realize that when they throw the banana peel into the trash, they're like, oh, it's going to break down. It's, it's a natural product. But when it's all put into a landfill, it is something that is really having a negative effect on the environment. So, um, so I would say shopping local, um, composting, eating less meat, um, I think is also a very important decision to make. I personally am a meat eater, but I choose uh, to, to consume meat that is, um, that is humanely raised. And uh, it's one of the things that when I'm, I'm choosing people to cover for tastemakers, I'm looking for people who are doing things in the right way. And by that, you know, the right way means that the animals, animals are cared for, the land is cared for, sustainability is top of mind. Um, and, you know, you, you talk to, to some regenerative uh, farmers and, you know, some people even who are raising cattle and the fact that they're using um, intense rotational grazing to sequester carbon. There are a lot of things that are going on in food production uh, where a lot of farmers are extremely intentional in the way that they are applying sustainable practices into, um, into how they're growing their food. So it can be tough to find time to, to seek out those particular producers in your area. But if you can, then I would highly recommend supporting them. That's a great point, Kat. And you would know this better than, than us, but don't you have, I believe, the oldest farmer's market, uh, Soulard Market, right on the banks of the Mississippi? Isn't that one of the oldest farmer's markets in the U.S.? It is one of the oldest, and actually, it's within walking distance of my house. Um, oh, that's convenient. The, yeah, I live in one of the older neighborhoods in St. Louis, and so Soulard Market, um, which was founded in the 18th century, is is just you know like a mile or so down the way. So I walk over there, and it's it's an it's kind of an, in a way an open air market. It has these two really long um, aisles, and it's just packed full of people. Uh, who are who are there with their families and you know it, it's not your typical farmers market because it is so large it's very diverse in terms of what it offers there are some like food stalls and all that kind of stuff so yes Seward, um right here in St. Louis it, it's uh it's exciting to see how um something like that was able to 
uh, kind of survive the uh, the industrialization of food and the rise of the of grocery stores, which ended up usurping kind of your local butcher shops and your local bread bakeries and your truck farm farmers markets, which is what people used to do is that farmers would just come up to a central spot, open up their trucks, and then people would just kind of like barter and yep. trade for food. And so anyway, yes, um, thank you for knowing that, that Soulard is, is right here in St. Louis. That's a, that's a, that's great trivia. Yeah. I love it. I love it. You know, I love to learn about things like that because I always say to everybody that then you can throw these little trivia things in a cocktail party and you'll get everybody's attention, right? So <laughs> isn't it true though? So you mentioned uh, about Feast TV and you also had a magazine, right, called uh, Feast and... And also another, um, you also co-created uh, a sauce, right? That I am so intrigued about because I believe in sauces and condiments like nobody's business. <laughs> I actually, I actually think that the 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 test of a good cook, besides you know cooking eggs, like they always say, is how to make a good sauce, particularly when you have to emulsify it. Now I'm gonna get like technical with like chemistry words. So, uh, like a long. All along this journey, how what do you think that made you so successful? Have such a loyalty base of listeners. Uh, I mean, we can call them consumers in a way because you are you have a service, right? You're providing a service. So, what do you attribute to your success? And here, that's actually an ulterior motive question for me because I am now starting that journey. So, to me. The, especially when, when you're building an audience, when you're a media entity, um, you know, it really is understanding the needs of your, of your, your reader and, and giving them useful information that is actionable, that it's entertaining. Um, and I would say that a lot of the success of the work that I've done is that I am a stickler for fact-checking. Um, I mean, which is very dry, but you know, it's like, I always want to do work that matters, work that has an impact. Um, so, you know, we don't just go out and, and tell surface stories about, oh, this new, you know, cheese place just opened up. It's really, it's diving a little bit deeper, giving people, um, you know, more interesting information about their neighbors and about their community. And, um, you know, that truly is what is at the heart of the craft food and beverage movement is people. Um, I mean, yes, you end up with products that, that are high quality and that they taste great and that's wonderful, but the really true compelling reason that, um, that the people have been drawn to this is, is that connection to their community. And especially now, I think we're, we're really yearning for a reconnection with our neighbors and our friends. Um, and, and food can really be a conduit to that, a bridge to that. So I think that kind of now more than ever, that focus on um, connecting through food, through your local community, connecting, like going to your, your local craft brewery to raise a glass together or meeting up at the farmer's market and going shopping together, you know, having friends over for dinner parties, you know, those types of things. Um, I think are what build ties within community. So I don't want to make it sound you know, too dramatic, but, but really I do think that one of the things that has led to the success of the work that I've done is that it comes back to the people um, yep. because that's really, I think what resonates uh, 
in, in terms of storytelling. Yeah. And, and like you said, right, there is, we are now living in, in, the, in, in times where there is that movement to get back to the roots of, of how we started, right? Let me tell you what, I came to the U.S., to live in the U.S. 20 years ago. And I never saw such beautiful products that tasted like nothing, right? It was so sad that you see like this gorgeous tomato. I'm obsessed with tomatoes. And it, it, you, you, it, it's just water, right? It's just, it's sad. It's sad. So I'm so glad that more and more people are uh, shopping and eating local, like you said, overly used, but in, on the other hand, not used enough. Right. Well, and, and what you're really referring to is that industrialization of food. It's the homogenization of food. So that big, round, bright red tomato that travels well, that can go from Southern California to Missouri without, you know, be looking too damaged. It doesn't have a lot of flavor, but it looks really good looks on good. the shelf. Yeah. And so what we're really seeing now is a return to more heritage varieties that are more delicate, they aren't as shelf stable, but they have a ton more flavor. And you know that's really kind of the balance that a lot of um, farmers and retailers and chefs are working to find right now is how do we, how do we inject more flavor, sustainability, diversity into the food system um, in a way that makes economic sense. Um, and so I think that that's, uh, that's kind of one of the, the challenges for lack of a better term, but opportunities more so um, than we're looking at now. Cause like back in the seventies, eighties, it was like iceberg lettuce, those big red tomatoes, you know, the same varieties of whatever. Um, and, and now you walk into a grocery store and it's just like this rainbow of, um, of things that you can choose from. Um, but you'll find even more diversity at the farmer's market because that's where it's that one-to-one -one connection. So if, if a piece of produce is slightly imperfect, you know, you can actually talk to the farmer about it. Like, oh, well, the, these apples don't look perfect because they're organic. And so they're, they aren't, you know, that perfectly green, shiny, you know, whatever. Um, so a lot of that kind of comes back to consumer education, uh, you know, in, in terms of understanding what the heritage varieties look like and also understanding that slightly bruised, whatever, you know, that might just be part of, you know, supporting a local farmer as opposed to more the industrial food system. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to wait for the season. You know, yeah. that's another thing, right? That I, I remember like how exciting it was for strawberry season, which is, yes. you know, like I remember we had them and it, they, they were not sprouting until like, um, late like spring, right? And then cherries that have such a short season, and that's part of the excitement of it, right? It's okay to wait, people. You don't you don't have to eat the strawberries all year long. I would agree with you, and it's so funny because I'll have I'll know like I'll be talking to someone who's cooking something way way out of season, and they'll be like July, and I'll be like, this orange doesn't taste very good. I'm like, yeah, these oranges are in season in the winter, or oh, this strawberry is really terrible, like in fall. And like, exactly, because it's this is not the season. Um, so no, I completely agree with you that if we if we start eating more seasonally, almost by default, we start eating more sustainably because you're going to be eating foods that are meant to be consumed in whatever season um, that you're experiencing, and so that that 
you know, mileage from, you know, the, the field to your plate is going to be a lot less. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not natural to eat fruit that comes from Chile, you know, it's delicious and seasonal. Well, unless but... you live there. Exactly. Unless you're right, right there. <laughs> right. Um, Kat, I, I know you know that Sustana's recycled fiber is added to all kinds of sustainable packaging from paper cups to carry out containers to sandwich wraps and even microwavable sleeves. And I just was curious, um, I know you've been talking about the farmers that you've worked with and some of the emerging brands, not only in the Midwest, but nationally. But do you see any type of a consensus or I should say growing consensus for using sustainable packaging, especially if they're in the organic space to uh, promote their sustainable platforms and, and connect better with more educated consumers? Absolutely. People care. If you're going to seek out um, a, a craft, local, organic, whatever term, you know, product, the packaging is part of it. Um, you know, I mean, the we're looking for things that can be recycled. We both know that plastic, almost all of it doesn't end up being recycled. Correct. Yeah, I know. And, you know, again, it's that consumer education piece. And what I have found, and I'm really heartened to see in just the past few years, there is a, a real intense focus on seeking out um, things that have less packaging and sustainable packaging and truly recyclable packaging um, because people are starting to really understand the environmental impact of their choices. Um, and especially younger folks, uh, I think that, that it's kind of like part and parcel with the, their worldview is that, you know, they want to, they're rejecting fast fashion. They are looking at electric vehicles. They're looking at the impact that they're making on the environment because they see what the impact has been like the, of the 20th century was on where we are at this moment. Um, and those choices deeply matter. So absolutely. When, when, when uh, makers are choosing packaging for their products, um, being able to not only from an ethical standpoint, choose sustainable and recyclable packaging, um, but also from a brand story standpoint that they can say this product is, you know, is, you know, packaged within something that is sustainable and recyclable, like the, the work that you guys are doing. Um, that, I think, just adds to their brand story and adds to their appeal to consumers who are seeking something like that out. That, that's great to hear um, your perspective on that, because Kelly and I, my colleague Kelly Kubasiak and I were at a, a recently at a sustainability conference, and we did talk to a lot of uh, fellow suppliers about this. But it, it's, it's great to hear from you on the consumer level that you really see that um, when you're producing your show, that people are really gravitating more and more towards sustainable packaging. So that's fantastic. And it's not even just in the way that I'm producing my show, you jump on Instagram and yep. you'll see that people, I mean, it is something that is becoming just more and more prevalent that, that people are questioning the way that things get to them as consumers and they're doing their best to make these um, sustainable uh, you know, choices that aren't going to have a negative impact on the planet. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm actually, you know, one of those, um, 
I don't want to bring the mood down a little bit here, but it's it's really hard with from like a material, you know, experts point of view, not to criticize and sometimes not even constructively because there's so many make-believe out there and greenwashing and things like that. And yes, there is definitely a movement towards that, but there is also so much that needs to be straightened out, you know, so many myths that need to be debunked, but you know, this is the subject for another podcast. I know, I know. One of the things that, uh, that I am anxious to see happen is that it's not always just a bottom line consideration because I think that a lot of folks are still resorting, especially like in the restaurant space, like with takeout containers, they're still resorting to styrofoam and things like that, which is deeply unsustainable. It's not recyclable in any way. And, you know, so I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, um, in convincing the people who are making those purchasing choices that it's worth a little bit more to not choose the lowest common denominator styrofoam packaging um, because the impact of that choice far outweighs the monetary uh, savings. But that that's that's a really tough conversation to have, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to do a little build up on that. The problem that I have is not so much with facing out those very well known to be very, you know, environmentally impactful in a negative way but also what are the choices what is the impact of the choices which is sometimes not as you know not as lessened as those who promote them claim that they are that is you know that to me is where the problem resides if you're going to solve a problem i don't want to have a bigger problem right so um, anyway going back to your maker movement so i actually believe strongly that you and you know hosts like yourselves of food shows uh, cooking shows food shows and, and and those that follow the food right and there's actually a show that i love called called follow the food um are responsible for us to all of a sudden become almost like um you know, I wouldn't say experts, but certainly we're much more seasoned connoisseurs of what the right thing is to do when it comes when it comes up to locality, right? So tell us tell us what your take on why that is happening so much now is. Uh, so what I would say is that that's the role that the media plays is the media, tells stories and, and, and they reflect back onto the audience what is happening in their community, whether it's local, regional, national. Um, and so I think it's the responsibility of people in the media to tell stories beyond just this tastes good. It's like you, you have to go deeper. And so when you're talking about um, the fact that you're learning a lot by, by watching these cooking shows, I mean, that's what makes a show meaningful. Even if it's fun, it can still be something where you're, you're, you have a takeaway. It's not just mindless. So, um, I mean, I, I, th I think I'm kind of like getting to what you're, what you're saying, right? I mean, that's, it, it, I mean, when you look even at the beginning of cooking shows, Julia Child, she was teaching people how to cook. And so it wasn't just this passive, um, you know, like consume, consumerism of, of like eye candy, you know, it really is the person watching it can take away how to make, make beef bourguignon or whatever it might be. And so 
And I also think it's important that um, that each host has their own you know, real perspective and voice and that they allow that to bring out the, the voices of the people who they are interviewing, the people who they're covering, or if they are, if they do have a cooking show, then obviously, you know, it's very much about their own perspective on like the, the flavor that they're creating in the kitchen and um, whether it's something that, you know, is impacted by a cultural background or a certain type of, of diet or, you know, cooking style, whatever that might be. You know, um, that's that's really you know the the diverse the diversity of voices in food media has never been more broad at this time, and I think that ultimately that is a, a fantastic thing for people who enjoy watching, reading, and hearing about food because there are tons of people who are in that space. Yeah, I mean, you you guys got. I, I wouldn't say lucky, but certainly you got so much more. We needed you a lot more in the during the pandemic, right? When we had those times when he's like, "Well, I can't go outside and and <laughs> and eat at a restaurant, so might as well like make the most of it at home and follow what you are communicating." I I honestly think that it was a a, a job greatly done because yes, TV media has you know in in in. For a very good portion of TV media, it's being so scrutinized because it doesn't do it doesn't do good, right, for us. But I think that in this case, is one of those stories with TV media has done great for society. So thank you for that. Oh my gosh, totally. welcome. I mean, I would agree with you. I think that the word media is kind of fraught at this moment, um, but that's what it is. I mean, it's people who are are funneling stories to. An audience, and there's a great deal of responsibility to, in my opinion, to tell stories that um, that matter. And so I'm I'm glad that you enjoy the show. Thank you very much. So, and I always get tips of where to go when I am on location. You know, you will never find me in a chain restaurant. By the way, <laughs> good. <laughs> I wouldn't think so, Marta. Um, yeah. Kat, um, I know uh, when you were growing up, you, you lived around the world and, and you had the chance to experience a lot of exotic cuisines. And then you ended up in St. Louis, which has its own one-of-a-kind uh, types of specialty dishes like toasted ravioli and that delicious gooey butter cake. Um, you know, we've seen other cities have other unique specialty offerings, whether it's Chicago's deep dish pizza or Baltimore's crab cakes or even Quebec's uh, poutine. Um, do you see some of these types of specialty offerings expanding um, to supermarkets more regionally or even nationally as people watch Tastemakers, your show, and, and other cooking and food shows? Oh, sure. I mean, poutine, as you just mentioned, that is something that has become very trendy. Um, and actually, uh, I recently saw that uh, people have what they're calling fried ravioli uh, that they're making at home, you know, like from the grocery store or whatever. And of course, everybody on St. Louis, from St. Louis is like, hashtag St. Louis, you know, like that's actually St. Louis. And so I, Part of, of the, one of the good things about um, kind of uh, the internet, social media, things like that, is that these kind of like regional gems really can be given a broader audience. And so I absolutely think that, um, you know, as people are 
you know, introduced to these kind of like wacky regional favorites like gooey butter cake, um, you absolutely are then able to find more and more, you know, a boxed gooey butter cake uh, mix in grocery stores outside of the St. Louis area. And that's what, again, I mean, food to me is, is something that is so reflective of culture in a lot of different ways. And, you know, so if you're able to get a taste of, you know, Maryland crab cakes and you're living in Ohio, I mean, that's a way that you can kind of like just in your own home or, you know, at a restaurant or something like that, kind of like go on a little, on a little trip without ever having to, to leave, leave home base. So yeah, for sure. Besides the TV work and, and feast and sauce and tastemakers, so we know that you're also the VP of communications for the uh, the city of St. Louis, right? Of Explore St. Louis, which is the, the city's convention and visitors bureau. Congratulations on that. That sounds like a very exciting job. And we hear that you have John Goodman, which I actually personally love as an actor. By the way, is he from St. Louis? Yes, he's from St. Louis. All right, all right. Now I see the connection. So tell us, tell us how you how you're planning on leveraging this role to continue on this fabulous journey of like convince the consumer that eating local and consuming local is the way to go and i think that and i'm, I'm pretty sure and you, you you know you have historical facts to back yeah. you up on that well here's the thing travel and tourism one of the anchors of travel to any new city is where are we going to eat where are we going to drink um you know and so i see the message of you know eating local drinking craft all of that is absolutely tied up with the travel and tourism industry um, in the same way that finding a boutique hotel and, you know, going to you know, a local ball game or a local museum. I mean, you travel in order to immerse yourself in the experience of that new place, whether it's a city or if it's a rural experience, whatever it is, you know, you're not there to eat in a chain restaurant and shop, you know, at Walmart or something like that. I mean, you're, you're not there you to shouldn't. everyday routine, <laughs> you know, you're there to experience something that's unique. And so to me, you know, my focus on, on really promoting and helping to put a spotlight on people who are doing things independently and sustainably that's a natural fit with the work that I'll be doing um, with, the, with, the, with Explore St. Louis in uh, positioning St. Louis as a travel and tourism destination. Because where else are you going to get the toasted raviolis? Of course. And, you know, it's part of, like you said, it's part of a trip, right? Like, what, what is the first thing that you normally hear from a person that gives you feedback of the last place that they've traveled to? Oh, the food was excellent, exactly. right? Or, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, to me, I've spent the majority of my career, um, really kind of promoting and spotlighting, you know, people who make this a unique place to visit or to call home. And so being able to join Explore St. Louis, um, is just, it's this, it was such a natural fit because it's something that I've been doing my entire career. So I'm, I'm really excited to be joining that team. I need to go to St. Louis, you know, I've yeah, been, I've been, should I do a road trip. St. Louis. I yeah, I can. You know, I can. I'll reach out. Please do. 
I would love that. Well, it's a great town. I, I can tell you, I, I used to live there for a couple of years, um, back in the late eighties, um, got my first job out of college there. And, uh, that's where I got exposed to gooey butter cake and I'm still addicted to it. It's, it's, <laughs> if you guys haven't had it, it is fantastic. Um, I have but, not. I have heard, I've had the, the fried ravioli though and the baked ravioli. That yes, because that is that is something that has made it out of St. Louis a yes, lot more than has. the butter cake. I, I hadn't even heard of it. So well, <laughs> and, and Kat, from a history standpoint even, I, I know in the World's Fair in 1904, wasn't um, I think the ice cream cone attributed to um, oh, yeah. St. Louis and being invented there during the yeah. 1904 World's Fair? Yes. So um, the story goes that uh, an enterprising ice cream salesman um, was looking for a way to make the ice cream portable and so made a, waf a waffle and just kind of like wrapped it and put the ice cream inside. And so it was the waffle cone. And um, I believe that also the hot dog bun was introduced for exactly the same reason that people want to be able to walk around because they're at the World's Fair. And so how do you make a sausage portable? You put it in a bun. So Oh my gosh. That is that is so fun. Let me tell you like a little piece of information here too. Um, I lived in Singapore for a few years, like oh, wow. uh, around eight years ago or something like that. And it, the ice cream sandwich in Singapore is an actual piece of white bread slice. It's a white bread slice, and they slap some uh, uh, some ice cream on it. That's your ice cream sandwich. It's very literal. It's a literal interpretation. Yeah, and why and why <laughs> and why a piece of bread like that? Because you know, in a tropical weather, like regular bread or waffles, or you know, like the waffle cone type of thing. You can't have that. It's, it doesn't get crunchy because it's so humid, right? Mm -hmm. So might as well just have the soggy piece of bread if it's going to get soggy anyway. Yes. <laughs> well, now I have a reason to go to Singapore. As if I have oh, a reason should. to go to Singapore. Yeah. Let me, let, me, let me know. I'll give you some tips. I know Singapore I, very well. <laughs> well. Right? Mm -hmm. So might as well just have the soggy piece of bread if it's going to get soggy anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now I have a reason to go to Singapore, as if I have oh, a reason should. to go to Singapore. Yeah, <laughs> let me let me let me know. I'll give you some tips. I know Singapore I, very well. I, yeah. <laughs> well, Kat, it, we could continue talking about food. Uh, oh, for the forever. Well, until dinner time. It's uh, <laughs> this is so I'm fascinating. Hungry. I'm getting hungry. Yeah, we're hungry. all in today. Any emerging entrepreneurs? Any advice you could give them on on starting a, a new business, um, especially in the sustainable space? Yes, absolutely. What I would say is it's there are so many aspects to success in product development. Branding, obviously, is something that is critical, um, but understanding your brand message. So being able to effectively communicate the way that your product is made, what makes it unique, why it stands out. Uh, so say you're a, uh, you mentioned green dirt farm. So if you're there in a sea of you know other sheep's milk cheeses why choose green dirt farms i think that that a lot of entrepreneurs are great at creating products but they aren't necessarily great at telling their own stories and so what i would suggest is you know focus on perfecting whatever it is that you're making but think really about that brand positioning your packaging is absolutely critical um, to kind of like catching somebody's eye either on the shelf of the grocery store or at the farmer's market and then really get comfortable with 
um, was saying why your product is unique and that people should should buy it because um, that is what is going to lead to your success. Well, that's fantastic advice. I'm taking Kat. all the notes about that. So <laughs> thank you, thank you well, for that, and thank you for all your marvelous stories and uh, for joining us today on Pulp Nonfiction. It, it's been a blast. Thanks so much. This has been this has been seriously such a great great time. I am so delighted and thank you, thank you. I'll make sure now. I gotta I gotta I gotta plan a trip to St. Louis. That's the only <laughs> thing that I can think of. Road right trip. Now. Well, you know how to get in touch with me, Greg Marta. Thank you for having me on the Pulp Nonfiction, which I love the name podcast. It's been a really enjoyable um, experience, and I what I mainly want to say thank you to uh, say. What I mainly want to thank you for is allowing the conversation to go beyond the surface of food and really talk about um, things that matter. Um, and so thank you very much. It's, it's really been, uh, it's been a great afternoon. Thanks again for joining us for this month's edition of Pulp Nonfiction, the paper and packaging podcast. We look forward to seeing you next month, but in the meantime, if you would like more information, please be sure to visit sustanafiber.com. And don't forget to subscribe and please give us a good rating and a good review. We want to keep bringing this to you and that is the best way that you can help us.